When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm one of the co-founders of Nori and the director of creative and marketing here. I have an alumnus of the show coming back on, Kevin Vallier, associate professor and director of the philosophy, politics, and economics program at Bowling Green State University and author of Trust in a Polarized Age, which we did the show on a few years ago. His newest book is called All the Kingdoms of the World on Radical Religious Alternatives to Liberalism. Thanks for being back, Kevin. Great to be back. It's a little bit of an obscure topic. I swear this relates to climate change because it relates to all sorts of things. There's connections here that um, maybe you've noticed in your personal life. Last time Kevin and I spoke, um, I had mentioned that I've noticed that my left-leaning friends tend to be more self-identifying as socialist or communist than even when I was an undergrad, when you would expect people to have extreme beliefs. I feel like I see more of that now. Many of my right-leaning friends are no longer the sort of dorky, young Republican future accountant people that I knew in college, but oftentimes are you know, quite extreme, populist. They have an iconoclasm of what they view as good beliefs that they purposefully contradict that set them apart from polite society sometimes. And then of that group on the right, the people that I know who have um, accelerated their rightward lean in some ways have also become religious in many cases. And they've yeah. not become religious in, you know, they're not joining Unitarian churches or mainline no. Protestantism. They're, they're often Orthodox or Catholic. And when yeah. they are Catholic, yeah. they're FSSP people, which, mm-hmm. uh, so like pre-Vatican II, if you're listening. Yeah, yeah. They, yeah, they well, they've they kind of split off and developed on their own. Um, not split off is maybe too strong, but yeah, the idea uh there is um really to reject anything that's remotely liberal about uh our political order because they see it as kind of causing all these political ills and as being resting on some kind of false uh theology. What is it about liberalism that is making these people so dissatisfied? And I know this is a question that you've built your entire career on, but what even is liberalism in the first place for someone starting from scratch? Sure. Um, So when I think of the liberal tradition broadly, I think of it as concerned at minimum with four principles for how the government should operate. The first is a principle of individual small group freedom. Uh, Liberals have disagreed about what exactly freedom comes to, but freedom is the the first and foremost thing about the liberal tradition. The second is an ideal of equality, uh, which is at the minimum an equality of rights, but very often in liberal tradition, it was a form of equality that wanted to resist arbitrary forms of power, things like absolute monarchs, extremely powerful um, organized religions that were coercively established. um, And uh, with time, that became also drawing on socialism uh, with worries about capitalist domination, but also drawing on classical, you know, classical liberals, pre, uh, pro-market people in the tradition that were worried about uh, government uh, domination. 
so liberty, equality, and then a doctrine of toleration, specifically religious toleration, uh, where the idea here is the state shouldn't really be involved in taking sides in religious matters. They should sort of leave people to themselves. That's manifested itself in different ways. You have an American approach to this, a French approach to this. Um, and then finally, I think of liberalism as the win-win ideology. Uh, it's it's trying to understand how we can build a society of mutual advantage or maybe one of the harmony of interests um, in, some, in some liberals. So the thought here is, you know, you have a society of mutual exchange or uh, democratic interaction that uh, sort of makes government better. So broadly speaking, the liberal tradition are those who emphasize these four principles uh, as limitations or uh, authorization of government. Uh, liberty, equality, toleration, and the harmony of interests. It sounds nice, especially if you compare, you know, the religious wars of the last millennium in, in Europe, um, all the strife. It seems nice if you can just say, believe whatever you want, try not to bring it into the public sphere or have uh, independently articulable reasons when you bring these concerns into the public sphere. And we can all live together without fighting. That, that sounds nice. But in practice, although I would put I, I would put that too strongly. I mean, a lot of my early career was rejecting even the idea that you keep that you privatize your faith in any way or any requirement that you uh, have to speak in non-religious terms in the public sphere i think that a liberal should reject those requirements uh, on grounds of respecting diversity so I, i'm about as little a secular liberal as one could be and still be a liberal okay that that's quite interesting but then yeah. why isn't your your view here more attractive to these people who maybe this is just going too far in accommodating beliefs that they just view as wrong. We know what the truth is. Why are we letting people persist in error? We're damning their souls. We should be much more interventionist here. Well, what's interesting about these kind of anti-liberal uh, positions, and we'll get into those specifics uh, in a bit, I'm sure, um, is that it's Catholic dogma that you can't coerce the unbaptized for religious ends. Like they're not members of the church. And so the church can't ask the state to help them coerce their members because the unbaptized aren't members. So you're not just trying to maximize salvation, right? You're not trying to, to use violence on people to get them in the church. And the interesting question is why and how you can have a lot of religious coercion without at least accidentally engaging in religious coercion of the unbaptized. Um, so even them say, look, there are constraints on how salvation can be realized. Uh, faith has to begin free. So, yeah, they're not. I mean, they're so they say, oh, maybe some people go to hell, but we leave that in God's hands. That's what happens with their freedom. If they're not members of the church. It doesn't seem genuine if you force someone to be baptized and then you end up with things like, you know, crypto Judaism in Spain or in Mexico. That yeah. People, yep. you know, it's just a superficial thing that they were forced to. They don't actually believe it. Does that yep. actually result in theology and them ending up in heaven anyways? I don't. Yeah, I don't well, I mean, that if, if they don't have the will or at least lack the opposition like a, an infant does, then it, I think it isn't valid or at least does certainly doesn't save your soul. Um, so so, yeah, there there is that. Of course, the broader worry is that if the baptized have certain privileges, like not being forced to live in a ghetto in Rome, um, then yeah, a lot, you'll get a lot of insincere conversion. And from the anti-liberal perspective, that's actually a really worrisome thing, people coming in for the wrong reasons, because then they'll take the sacraments like uh, communion or the Eucharist um, insincerely, which is grave sin. 
Um, and so essentially, I think a lot of worries about a lot of this coercion is that people um, are uh, insincere in their religious practice. And that's been an argument going all the way back to Locke, but it's one of those I think is a good one. Are there other reasons that maybe if it doesn't get insincere converts into heaven, it still results in enough public virtue that it may enhance the likelihood of believers who sin end up in heaven and therefore on net leads to more salvation and therefore we should be coercively religious? So two points there. So yes, the thought is once people are baptized and put under the authority of the church, that the, the church can help them to become sincere. Well, that's certainly true. Um, but, um, and I think there is a thought, yeah, you'll you'll save more souls, but there is still this proto-liberal part of it, which is that you you cannot use force to save the souls of the unbaptized. Now, hopefully, having faithful Christians um, in a society will draw uh, the non-unbaptized in, uh, but historically, that hasn't really been the trend. That hasn't really been what happens. In fact, one of the reasons I think a lot of these views went away is because they did require the suppression of religious minorities so as not to tempt the faithful. But then those persistent non-Catholic or, say, non-Christian communities uh, were turning out to add a lot of society, and they turn out to resist. Um, and the cost, economic and moral costs of suppressing these groups was just too high. How much of this attraction do you think is something – did you watch The New Pope – or is it the young pope? Yeah. There's two of young, them, right? young, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I yeah, I don't I don't know. One's with uh uh Jude uh Jude Law. I think that's the young pope. That's the young one. And then there's a new one with Charles Dance, isn't there? I can't remember. But I haven't watched either of them. Oh, well, you you'd probably like it because it's probably the only representation of illiberal or anti-liberal Catholic uh, integralism. Because he he is saying that we, yeah. we we need the smells and bells, we need the mystery, we don't need this sort of like God loves everyone equally. No, there's God makes demands upon you. You have to comply in order to receive God's love and forgiveness. And the Catholic Church has been failing because they've neglected this in terms of I don't know. There's a line from uh, King of the Hill where he says with regard to Christian rock, you're not making Christianity better. You're just making rock and making, roll worse. Yeah, worse. And yeah, I love that. Yeah. It's a, it's a great line. And, and the, um, I, I attend a mass at a parish nearby and oftentimes there's a, there's a folk band that plays and I would prefer probably a high church choir in cases. I'm not yeah. sure that it's aesthetically the best, but that's a big part of this is just, there's no mystery. There's no power to it. Yeah. Just, there's no requirements here. Just show up if you want. And if you don't, that's okay too. And there needs to be a strictness yeah. here. And I feel like people, maybe liberalism permits everything and therefore there's no, there's no like elite to it. You don't have to do anything to be a part of this crew. It's a very weak tie. Is, is there something yeah. here that I'm, I'm getting on that is correct? It's yeah. Like, I mean, this sense. is actually how the, this is actually um, how the new um, uh, sort of Catholic integralist movement got started was seeing um, the, the idea that seeing the, Churches of a merely voluntary organization within the state um, was going to lead us to not take the church very seriously. Um, so, yeah, I should probably just define uh, integralism um, here uh, just so people know uh, what we mean, because even integralists seldom define their view. So I, I take integralism to consist in three claims. Um, the first two, as far as Christians go, are pretty benign. The first is that God authorizes uh, the state to govern um, uh, in, in favor of the common, the temporal common good of the community, the earthly common good. Uh, part of Christian tradition, Old Testament monarchs, Romans 13, 
and so on. Then God authorizes the church to ascend uh, to govern the spiritual good of its members and also to evangelize uh, the, the uh, unconverted. So those are fine, um, but uh, it's the third condition that's pretty interesting. Uh, in the medieval period, you know, the church really was thinking of itself as a polity, and it was not only powerful spiritually, it was powerful temporally. Papal states. And the result right. of this, literally a state. Yeah. Literally, yeah, the, the Pope had temporal sovereign, uh, temporal, was a temporal sovereign from uh, the donation of Rome uh, by Pepin the Short in 756, was king of the Franks, um, all the way down to Italian unification forces in 1870, uh, you know, taking it back, confining the Pope to Vatican. So yeah, the, the, the Pope was a temporal sovereign for over a thousand years. Um, and so this idea of the church being a polity, which you become a citizen of through baptism, and the state being a polity raise these questions about their relationship that don't really come up for modern uh, polit modern political thought. Essentially, they're doing a different kind of political philosophy, what I like to call two-polity political theory. And we do one-polity theory, right? State versus the individual and civil society and so on. So they just ask different questions uh, and approach things differently. But the reason this view uh, – so – so then what are the powers of church and state, right? Well, how do they relate? God has authorized them both. They both have divine missions. Well, the, the Pope can't take over everything because the state has its own independent divine mission, and the state can't take over what the church is doing. So they have to be integrated in some way. And the way this came to be was that baptism made one a citizen of the church, subject to all the rights and responsibilities thereof. That means that you're subject to church law, the co the canon law. Um the church can give you spiritual punishments like excommunication, but sometimes the church would judge that those spiritual punishments were ineffective. A uh, heretic doesn't repent, uh, starts to cause all kinds of trouble, and so they could call on the state to serve as its what was often called its secular arm. So the church uh, could ask the state to use its civil, the state's civil code and civil punishments to apply to its members, so long as that state were Christian and the church authorized it to do so. So, summing up. Integralism says three things. God has authorized the state to promote the temporal common good of the community. God has authorized the church to promote the spiritual common good of its members in that community. And finally, that the church can authorize the state to help to back its spiritual mission, which is the kind of indirect power of the Pope as it was described for a long time. Hmm. What happens when you have a case like Anglicanism where Charles III is the, the head of the Church of England um, and so there's an established church, but it's not like it was hundreds of years ago where there's fights over the Book of Common Prayer and the Scots are having none of it. And, and there's all that doesn't happen anymore. Yet there's still an establishment, but there, it's part of liberalism now, too. Like you can't have establishment without it being a, a polity or is, or is this line more blurry than I'm putting it here? Well, a lot of it has to do with the way that uh, Anglican Church, but also the Catholic Church have come to understand themselves. And, you know, in the late 20th century, church, Catholic Church often sees itself as a, a, the people of God, not not so much a polity. Um, and so that way of conceiving of the church and establishing the church means something different than it would have meant before. Um, the, the establishment of a church, you know, particularly Catholic church historically, is a way of bringing the two polities into proper alignment. Uh, the heavenly polity has a nobler purpose, salvation. Um, so yeah, you can have mildly established uh, religions today that, you know, can remain broadly liberal because the... Ecclesiastical power is totally toothless. Um, so, so yeah, these are forms of establishment that are pretty mild, but the integralist says that the ideal is a very coercive form of establishment. 
the Pope can authorize the state to engage in really serious civil penalties for ecclesiastical or uh, canonical crimes. When did that change? Or when did the, the Pope lose that authority? Was it reunification of Italy? Um, so it was already starting to die off pretty uh, with early modern Catholic states. Um, they were, you know, the ones that were established primarily after the wars of religion, uh, as they were called. So, you know, the Spanish crown would be loyal to the Pope in some ways, but it didn't have to be. They just had so much more power. And then as time, when other um, societies started to become nations, and much later with Germany and, and Italy, and Italy in particular becoming its own state and being unified in the late 19th century, took the papal states away from the Pope, confined the Pope to the Vatican. Um, and so basically stripped the Pope of any uh, temporal power outside of, you know, Vatican City, basically. Um, I mean, what is, you know, was, uh, so um, yeah, the, the European states just took away the Pope's authority, even though by, by the Reformation, it had, uh, by the end of the, the, the Reformation, you know, it really wasn't effective in many places. Uh, so, and and there are even questions about how effective it was in the middle, uh, the high Middle Ages and late Middle Ages, uh, because in many cases kings would just ignore the Pope, and so there wasn't an effective indirect power. So, actually, the presence or existence of the indirect power, um, as I've described it, is actually not that common as functioning in effect in medieval Europe as you would you might think. You have quite a big section here about the the crowning of Charlemagne and the dance between yeah. who's crowning and who's bowing. Yeah, to and I yes. heard that with like yes. Napoleon taking the crown for himself much later. Yeah. Something happened in a millennium. Yeah, right? yes, yes. Although really, with Charlemagne, it happens because he doesn't think he gets any legitimacy uh, as emperor um, because uh, Leo the Third crowned him. But Leo the Third took something very different away from it. Um, and so, yeah, even then, um, you know, he thought he could call councils and did. There's a council of Frankfurt that rejected icons, but all the ecumenical councils were um, called by uh, Byzantine emperors um, and one em empress, uh, uh, the seventh one, but um, regent empress Irene. But um, so the thought was, yeah, the king had a great deal of ecclesiastical power, even though they couldn't define dogma. Now, they could have their own bishops and appoint their own bishops was up to up to the state. Uh, and that was a position that was actually not that uncommon, uh, even in the high Middle Ages in France. So in, in, often in France, there was a, a a greater sense of the monarch's power in ecclesiastical affairs, in part because of Charlemagne's legacy. Hmm. We have a state of affairs now where in much of the world that listeners are, are listening from, there is a strong separation of church and state. This is a fairly voluntary or mostly voluntary association that you might have with your church if you go to church at all. And there's no compulsion to go if you don't. And um, I think we've taken for granted. You probably were taught in school that that was a good thing and that it's all yeah. it helps us get along. But actually, that's more controversial and it's becoming more controversial as time goes on, it turns out. Maybe we can walk through the challenges to liberalism here from integralism and, and, and why that's happening now. So one reason it's happening now, and then we'll, we can shift to the intellectual challenges, is that I think many young Catholics feel betrayed by liberal order. They're told that they would be tolerated when, in fact, their views are often despised by American elites. A lot of these really smart Catholics have gone to really top-notch universities where they felt that they were on the outs. They were marginalized. They couldn't talk about their views. Their views are hated and bigoted and so on. Um, and I think there's a greater willingness among young Catholics to say, and even conservative Protestants are saying, you know, look, 
um, maybe this whole American project is culminating in progressivism. Maybe the the problem was there for the start. Maybe the American idea was a mistake. You know, you don't have many young conservatives with pocket constitutions anymore. Um, um, but 20 years ago, you did. Uh, and it's because Christians felt comfortable in social order, the American American social and political order, even though not everyone agreed with them. Um, they didn't feel like the state was openly hostile. The culture was openly hostile to them. And so that created a demand for kind of right-wing radicalism, a sense that you could cure political ills if you radically change society. Um, so I think that's a big part of the attraction of integralism. Another big part of it is this idea that as Christians, we really should be willing to have a Christ-focused political approach. Right, like the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are not giving us political ideals uh, in a theological context, and that's oftentimes what they want, which I understand that. Um, I, I understand both impulses. Um, it's just going on, you know, as as radically far away from where we are now as possible uh, does not seem to me a, be a good idea, really warranted or effective given our. Um, social conditions. Now, intellectually, part of the argument is that the integralism fits better with the, the uh, history of the church, and I, I discussed that in the book. Um, and it also makes more kind of philosophical sense that the state would at least be involved in promoting our ultimate good. Um, like, why would the state, you know, be restricted to only promoting temporal goods if it could work with the church to help people go to heaven? And this was the point you're getting at. Like, it's crazy that the state shouldn't do that. It's negligent. Um, even though, as I said, there are limitations there on the means that can be used um, to promote the supernatural good. The idea that it would just not be in the business of doing that at all uh, is just really peculiar. So those are the things I think really driving intellectually. There's the history, what I call history argument. And then there's what I call the symmetry argument, which is just the claim that, look, if states are going to promote natural goods, why then they should promote supernatural goods like you know salvation and the virtue of faith and the Eucharist um, as well. Right. So there's a symmetry between how the state treats natural and supernatural goods. I think those are the two main arguments in the arsenal of uh, the integralist. And they clasp, I think, pretty well. The one gives you the kind of institutional form, the history argument, and the other gives you the sort of political philosophical rationale. Right. The, the moral argument. Yeah, so much to talk about there. Curious why you associate this with um, being a right wing proclivity, because whenever I've read um, the Gospels, it always strikes me as very demanding and, and almost pre or apolitical in a way. And I often yeah. think of the the line from Romans of, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Like the demands made on you just in the Sermon on the Mount are extreme. There's, there's yeah. it, it asks a lot of you and in, in basically however much you give, you're probably not going to get to that saint level or that Christ level. That's just sort of yeah. mostly beyond you unless you are really truly that elect little crew that can do it. Um, but yeah. It doesn't even strike me as being something that is like a, a way to own the libs or anything else. Like it, it, Dorothy Day, I think, is a great example of someone who's yep. lived that in, in the Catholic worker movement. That that's not a, that's not a right wing thing, but that, that strikes me as in line with the Gospels. Why is it not that? Why is it not the Catholic worker movement blowing up rather than some sort of right wing populist integralism? Well, it's interesting with the integralists that they're they're no fan of markets, um, and there used to be a, a lot of left wing integralists, but. Uh, Trump's election gradually produced a kind of fracture in the movement, and the left-wing folks would in, eventually split off and then kind of die out. 
So that's just kind of like part of the story why integralism got to be associated with Trump and and such things. Um, but they're still very left, uh, uh, economically more left wing. They just say that the problem with the progressives is they make all the theology watered down and heretical. Um, and so the thought is like, if you want to be a true Catholic, yeah, you should lean left on economic issues. You got to lean right on uh, social issues. Um, but what really makes them right wing is their response to America. They're not conservatives in the Anglophone sense of preserving institutions. They're more like right-wingers in uh, the French sense, in the sense of trying to undo the revolution, right? So it's less, say, Edmund Burke and more Joseph uh, de Maistre. So, you know, you, you're they're counter-revolutionary right-wingers. They're not really conservative. Counter-revolutionary um, or reactionary is a term that's pejorative, but often used for these people too. Yeah, when I think of Edmund well, that's Burke, why I use counter-revolutionary instead of uh, reactionary, because reactionary is a pejorative. But I don't think counter-revolutionary is. I mean, counter. I guess revolutionary has a more positive. Yeah, but maybe, maybe it's yeah, maybe better. Yeah, it's more obscure. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, if someone called themselves that, I'd be like, who? what kind of dog whistle is this or what 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 audience yeah. is this this term for exactly but yeah when i think of edmund burke's a great example of you know change needs to happen but it has to happen in the and he took stands too about india about america like edmund burke is not some sort of horrible person like this but he thought that we no. should do things gradually not through fiat we should respect change and make sure things come from the bottom up kind of thing that does not strike me as being in line counter counter revolutionary Kind of mentality. No, although um, there's a new book by uh, Roger Scruton student, uh, Sebastian Morello, that actually makes the case that Burke has some integralist elements, uh, Anglican wise. Um, you know, I don't know how convincing it is, but um, but it's detailed and it's really grounded in the text. Um, I had no idea about that side of him, but he's definitely not Maestra and a counter revolutionary and all of that. I just think he thinks if society preserved the right sorts of things, it would gravitate towards integralists or quasi-integralist institutions. But, you know, that would just be a claim about evolution, development of societies, and you couldn't really know for sure whether that was true or not. So, like, Morello, for instance, when I've talked to him, is just very clear. He's like, we have no idea what religious establishment is going to look like when we're getting society right. Um, but we have some guesses. So, in any event... Um, there is at least one guy who's quasi-integralist um, who has made the argument for pushing Burke and Maester a little closer together. But it, that, that is just the exception that proves the rule, um, I think, of the association between them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, uh, yeah, the idea is to undo the order that exists, to replace it with a better order, rather than trying to preserve what's best in it. Because as many integralists will say, well, how much good is even left? You can't conserve things if they're bad. I think if you say, well, look at the Hutterites, the Mennonites, the Amish, those are opt-in. There's a rumspringa sort of ability to yeah. exit, but that's just, but the mainstream, you're, so that maybe is that the exception? Oh, foolish Protestantism, proto-liberalism. Even that's proto-liberalism? The Mennonites? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they think the Protestants are an inevitable, liberalism's an inevitable um, consequence of Protestantism, because Protestantism says you can have private judgments and matters of faith and what to believe in your conscience. And liberalism just generalizes that, universalizes that idea. Yeah, the priesthood of the believers, as you... Yes, yes. About. But now not as a priesthood of your moral beliefs, too.
what would it look like to have an established church? Would it, we just could we even do that in the United States? Is that even going to make? Well, it's unconstitutional. So you would, you know, so so you can't do that. But you do have to change the establishment clause, or at least to somewhat modify it, and that would take, you know, that's never going to happen. Um, I think what they're imagining, like Adrian Vermeule's written a bunch on why he thinks that um, uh, liberalism will destroy itself. And I think he's imagining something a little like what happened with the Soviet Union and its collapse. So Marxism gets intellectually discredited. The Marxists leave the government, but the government still exists. And there are enough people sympathetic to liberal democratic capitalism that have been inside the state that then they're able to kind of reorient and take over the state and push it in a new direction. So the thought is that, you know, what may happen is that um, American liberals collapse. They lose their authority. But then if you have the right people in the judiciary and the administrative state, um, they'll be ready to create a kind of Catholic establishment um, or at least a broadly Christian establishmentarian uh, state in the ruins of collapsed uh, liberal ideology. So, you know, I mean, it's not a, a, a it, it's not the claim that like there haven't been ideological collapse and recolonizations of the state and a change in its ideology. The problem for Catholics is that it's not, they can't actually do it on the integralist view unless the Pope supports it. They're not allowed to. The Pope has to authorize this. So the Catholic Church isn't going to do that. Um, Francis called integralism a plague in a private meeting. Um, uh, yeah, you just Google that. So, um, you know, I mean, there's 5,600 bishops in the Catholic Church. You're going to have to find cardinals from there that are integralists. They're going to have to decide to elect an integralist pope. The integralist pope is going to have to decide to be integralist again uh, in terms of policy. I mean, you know, so getting a Catholic state in the United States, just focusing on state capture over time, either the timeline's short, in which case it's inevitably violent. I don't think the integralists want that, but it's inevitably violent. Like or it's just basically. so – yeah. It's like Hayek says about socialists. You know, it's like they to get to socialism, you you have to use means that most socialists reject, um, or that the plan for takeover is over centuries, and then you just have no idea about what the social conditions would even be. Um, so either it's a it's a bloody short term plan, or it's a hopelessly vague long term plan. But that's just on the state side of things. That's just getting control of the state you have to get control of the church and then the church and the state have to reunite when states now have like nuclear weapons i mean their power is unimaginably greater than the papacy so i don't really see why any modern state would submit to the pope it seems crazy so i don't see why the tra- i mean i think the transitional problems are um just overwhelmingly difficult and i talk a lot about that in in chapter four when i talk about um uh, Adrian Vermeule's kind of transition strategy or plans um, based on about 15 different short articles he's written about various aspects of it. So, hmm. What about something like um, the Benedict option, Rob Dreher, sort of retreat? Well, the problem with that is, um, is that Vermeule addresses it in his review of Deneen's book. And he says, look, the liberal state is too toxic. It's not going to allow for this local stuff. So, you know, you have to find, as he says, a strategic position to sear the liberal faith with hot irons, um, uh, you know, to capture the institutions of the old order that liberalism is uh, prepared, turn them to human dignity and the common good. So, 
you know, he just thinks you have to engage in a kind of capture the state. This is in his review, integration from within. And integration is kind of a code for integralism, right? Um, so, um, yeah. So that's the worry about Deneen. But now I think Deneen agrees with him because of regime change stuff. He too is thinking about taking over the state. Um, and that's, I think, between his friendship with Vermeule on the one hand and his, uh, I guess, friendship in a way with Viktor Orban. Do you ever feel like your scholarship, this sounds insulting, Kevin, I don't mean it this way, is boring, though? Because these people are advocating radical things and you're defending the established order, you know, with some changes, I'm sure, but broadly defending the institutions that exist. That, that seems like kind of a hard, kind of unsexy academic place to be. Is that wrong? That's that's right. I mean, the problem right now is, you know, liberalism is less exciting than it once was. But I think that um, as liberals try to adjust to these, you know, liberalism is very adaptable. I mean, when when socialism came along, it took on socialist elements. When conservatism uh, was opposing uh, socialism uh, in the U.S., U.K., it kind of harmonized with conservatism. And so you get these two sort of quasi-liberal governing ideologies, progressivism and a kind of fusionist conservatism. So like that's one of the reasons that liberalism has done so well. It's kind of survived by mitosis and then, um, and then you know, symbiotes. Um, so, you know, liberalism is super, super adaptable. So that um, it, it, it's the reform ideology. So it doesn't screw up the local niche like socialism does. It just changes everything and collapses. But unlike conservatism, it can sort of experiment right um so so i won't put it past liberals to find a way to draw on the insights of these folks uh to develop a kind of richly christian form of liberalism uh that's a lot more inspiring uh and i want to be part of that um so yeah I, you can't ever count liberalism out like it's looked like it was going to die in the late 19th century um it looked like it was going to die in like the 30s and 40s um and then it just keeps not not dying so i'm hopeful do you never feel the temptation to i don't even know how to say this in uh properly but filioque filioque the the filioque do you, do you ever just want to just just tell the catholics they're wrong and then have the orthodox just like subsume catholicism and then just end the end the schism permanently wouldn't that just be a nice clean solution though um to which problem to which problem oh, to make it exciting to make it to make it exciting um well yeah orthodoxy is pretty exciting um and it's also new and radical um but and it doesn't have like almost all the local churches are pretty respectful of religious freedom uh russia said some nice stuff in the early 2000s but now it's kind of gone back on it to some degree uh not entirely um but um yeah i mean the orthodox actually because for a lot of the time, you 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 um, had the Byzantine emperor being way more powerful than all the local bishops. Uh, integralism doesn't really come up because you don't have a pope that's superior to the crown. Um, and so you get this doctrine of symphonia, which is a kind of integration, but it's, it's still a very central role for uh, a czar or an emperor or something like that. Um, I don't think that's what's required to be orthodox. Um, but I do think we should get the band back together, ultimately. I mean, um, you know, uh, we need to because that's what God wants us to do. Um, and I, I actually think we can agree to disagree about the filioque, but still be in uh, open communion with one another. But, yeah, I mean, 
the Orthodox are not very liberal. They've not really dealt with liberalism except in a ways that they perceive as as hostile. But you know, there are young American radical Orthodox that are kind of like uh, integralists um, that think there should be a Christian state. But yeah, the idea that the Orthodoxy would be the established religion of the U.S. is thousands of times less likely than Catholicism being the established church of the U.S., which is already a one in a million, if not more, chance of actually occurring. So not the best way to go. It's amazing that you think that ending the schism is both desirable and, and even possible here. I guess it depends on what you have to acknowledge that the supremacy of the pope over the patriarchates to, to do it? No, it, well, sort of. So um, what it would evolve, in my view, is uh, the Pope being granted, recognized by the Orthodox as having a purely judicial power to resolve disputes between the other patriarchs, because that's how Orthodox see the role of the Pope in many cases uh, in the first millennium. Hmm. So, and I don't think any of the like last six or seven popes have any interest, say, in picking the bishops um, that are on the Orthodox jurisdiction. Um, and, and in fact, I don't think a pope's ever, um, um, maybe one exception, tried to appoint the Patriarch of Constantinople, um, which, you know, that bishopric goes back to Char uh, to Constantine. Um, so I don't, th I think there could be some kind of concordat where there was an agreement where the Pope says, look, I'm not going to try to appoint your, your bishops or depose your bishops, but, you know, we'll be in communion, you'll acknowledge me as arbiter, um, and, um, you know, there could be something like that. Uh, and a lot of Orthodox are really hostile to this, but there are other Orthodox that are interested in reunion. Catholics tend to be very interested in reunion, and they, they are pretty, they, they will say, like, well, yeah, papal primacy, you need to acknowledge that. It's heretical not to acknowledge it on the one hand, but we should really find a way to bury the hatchet. Um, so, but yeah, if that were to happen, I mean, Christ, you know, the Orthodox Catholicism, whatever we would call it, that of Roman Catholicism, we just call it Orthodox Catholicism or Roman Orthodoxy or who knows. Um, but um, uh, it would be a much more conservative organization. Um, and also one lot less inclined toward certain kinds of liberalism. Um, so, and that'd be good in some ways and bad in others, in my view. Yeah, I'd like to unpack that. And, and also to add to it, do you think it would lead to more agreement, having a more unified Christendom in this way? Is it bad that there's so many sects? Does it lead to more conflict or does it lead to more options for exit that result in less conflict on net? Well, I mean, you know, the Orthodox Church is, has been pretty good at avoiding internal schism. I mean, we have a little bits and ones here, and we have like a little bit of believers, one now, right? But like they're running around. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not, and all the calendarists uh, too. And yeah, I mean, that's not a big deal, really. But um, I mean, the Orthodox Church has done uh, pretty good in avoiding schism, and so so is the Catholic Church. But I think there's a de facto schism in the Church and in ca the Catholic Church that there isn't in the Orthodox Church over doctrine. I mean, the ecumenical patriarch and patriarch Kirill's, the patriarch of Moscow and all Russia, um, they don't disagree on theology. It's mostly just like geopolitics. Um, so we have a lot more internal dogmatic uh, unity, although we have a lot less dogma too. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the patriarchs, they do not have Francis's social views. They might be somewhat sympathetic to his economic views. Um, but not as, not as his social views. Um, 
And I think there's also would be a lot of trust issues with the papacy trying to sort of mess with Orthodox liturgy, in part because of Francis coming down on the Latin mass. What about things like uh, a lot that? of hurdles? There, there are, but there's also, um, is it uniate? Is that how I say? I've only ever read. These yeah, yeah, that's that's them. how some of the Orthodox came under and how you, the church, the Catholic Church, and you got the Byzantine rite, which still exists. Um, the monastery but that, is pretty close to Seattle, actually, a couple hours drive up in the mountains. There's a Byzantine rite. They're here. Oh, yeah, they're amazing. Um, and, you know, we have the exact same liturgy as they do, and they don't even say the filioque. Um, so they don't have to. Um, because it's an early, you can keep as Catholics to an older liturgy, um, as long as it doesn't make claims that the church has denied. So they actually leave the Orthodox liturgy alone for the, or the Byzantine liturgy alone. And so it's identical to our liturgy, except for uh, um, commemorating the Pope. So yeah, it's just the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. So there's still huge similarities. And do you, did we answer that? Do you think on net us agreeing more um, like among co-religionists or near co-religionists, would that lead on net to, to like more harmony? Do you think that would actually happen or too soon? to? Tell? I mean, it depends on, it would depend on the issue. I think there would be more harmony in resisting certain modern uh, social teachings. There'd be more harmony with respect to agreement about things like abortion. Um, but I also think that, um, you know, there would be internal tensions because um, many of the progressives would be kind of pushed back on their their heels. Um, and maybe the Orthodox would develop a really powerful progressive faction, um, but we really don't have one. We have a very small intellectual progressive faction um, surrounding Fordham. Um, but yeah, so I mean, it would, but I don't think it's going to happen for a century or so because, you know, the Orthodox, we had such a disastrous 20th century between you know, the Ottomans and the, the communists, um, that I think we really need to recover ourselves and our institutions and writings and self-understanding, because I think a lot of Orthodox would worry that a reunification would um, lead to the sort of Catholic culture and influence undermining and diluting Orthodox, um, the Orthodox Church. I can see that, but you might gain some too. Having a transnational Pope has the benefit of you know, geopolitics becoming less of a thing for state churches at the national level, like Russian orthodoxy, I'm sure has, feels pressure. They felt certainly pressure during the Soviet times, but even now with the-, the Oh, war they feel pressure China, now. Yeah. 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 I mean, in terms of the war, although Kirill is so for the war, he doesn't see yeah, it as pressure. Um, but all the same, it's still done a lot to discredit Russian orthodoxy in a lot of ways that um, made me very sad. Um, so- yeah, I mean, I think um, there would still be national churches in Orthodoxy, I think. But having the Pope as as our, our arbiter and recognized, and he'd play more of a diplomatic role, and so would be, I mean, kind of restored as the first bishop of Europe. Um, uh, that, yeah, that would give him a lot more prestige and power. Now, it depends on how he would use it but with orth if the orthodox had the power to vote for pope you know the patriarchs would say for instance in the metropolitans or what have you um then you get fewer progressive popes um so 
That's pretty fascinating. So France, yeah. a new Francis would be unlikely in, in, in a less likely orthodoxy depends on what the voting rights of the Orthodox would be. Maybe the Catholics don't give them voting rights. I don't know. It all depends. They have to work it out. But if they're going to be governed by the Pope at all, then you would think they'd get a vote. On the other hand, if they're not governed fully, then you might think they don't. Well, how's it work with um, bishops that oversee, or I guess with these liturgical right differences here, do they have? They all they all can get, have cardinals that can vote. Actually, I think they have their own system because everyone, if you look at the College of Cardinals, you'll see a couple of ones dressed like Orthodox, if you pay attention, small number um, that are the Byzantines. So, yeah. Um, but no, the details would have to be hammered out, and that would take decades too. Um, but the ecumenical patriarch, uh, he, uh, Bartholomew, he already supports reunion. Um, you know, he just he says he's told I mean, even our holiest monks. He says it's going to happen eventually. Um, so, you know, that matters. You think that's a this century kind of thing? Any odds? No idea. I don't have any idea. A lot of it has to do with Orthodox regaining their confidence as in terms of its institutions um, after being just utterly destroyed and dominated and obliterated. There's still a lot of intellectual work in Orthodoxy and figuring out like who we were historically. Like there's been so much forgetting. So for instance, a lot of Orthodox think that like Aquinas is the, the devil or whatever, but like Byzantine receptions of Aquinas actually varied quite a bit. There were some who didn't like him, and there were some who liked him a lot. Um, the Orthodox have kind of forgotten our tradition of natural law because there's so much desire to distinguish ourselves. Um, but many of our, uh, you know, um, uh, great, um, you know, saints and intellectuals like Maximus, you know, had a doctrine of natural law. So, you know, I also think that you know, Orthodox think you have to reject any substitutionary view of the atonement. Um, but it turns out they're Orthodox. Some Orthodox have, you know, in the past centuries ago, have substitutionary views, not penal substitution, but substitutionary views. Um, you know, so I think um, recovering Augustine as an Orthodox saint, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things that could be that could happen that would lead to some harmonization. Um, I just don't think it's going to happen for a long time if it happens at all. Well, my layperson understanding here, oh, I'm actually using layperson in a kind of appropriate way here, but also <laughs> I associate it with um, the Desert Fathers and mysticism yeah. and not being, yeah. having, um, and even I've been, to, I've been inside of many Orthodox uh, cathedrals and, and yeah. churches and, you know, Church Slavonic is often very beautiful. There's lots of chanting, there's yeah. censors going around, yes. incense. Oh like, yeah, I sing in my choir, yeah. And it's beautiful too. Like I, I like that. I've also been to the FFSF. I don't know why I can't say it. FSSP here in Seattle. Mm -hmm. And it is the most fecund place I've ever seen. Every, everyone there has so many children, like every yeah. couple. And they're all dressed appropriate. It's not like, well, show up, you know, show up as you want. They're like, no, you show up in your Sunday best. The Sunday best actually yeah. exists in those places. And I can see those yeah. standards being attractive to people. There's like, it's beautiful in a way that the mega church inside the strip mall is just not. And I can see that growing. Yeah. Maybe this is relevant for climate change too, because the way that we've described it right now, it sounds like it's, there's some intellectuals like Denine at Notre Dame is, uh, or I guess you said Notre Dame here, if you're in America, that's, that's like intellectuals and some weird internet people, but like this probably will have trickle out from anecdotes from you and I and the intellectuals out to having more of an impact on society in the next decade or two. I think, do you agree with that? Is that going to influence our politics more than it is now? 
the problem with the American integralists is they want political power now, now, now. And so they've taken the doctrine esoteric and don't talk about it that much. So for instance, they've not engaged, you know, my book at all, not even a mention. Um, they don't really want to talk about this stuff early, uh, openly. Now, I didn't expect them to engage. I mean, I'm not bothered by it either. I was kind of relieved um, uh, because of how they, well, because of how they tend to engage people intellectually is just pretty negative. Oh, the um, kind of faith, you think? Mean, mean, at least. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just just kind of nasty and dismissive. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, integralists, though, who are totally the opposite of that. So you bend over backwards, by the way, to be like, well, to be fair to Catholics here, I'm not a Catholic, but like I read all this stuff and this is what they would say. Like, I've, you were yeah. very generous to them, too. I tried to be. I tried to be. Um, I think I was. I think most integralists realized that. I know one of them told me that it was jarring to see me defend integralism. That's not what they were expecting. So yeah, but I I give it the I give it the best shot I can. So you steel man it pretty well. I think that you you do. Oh thanks. But but so do you? Would you predict that they want it now now now? But will will it go from being you know intellectuals and internet people to being will this become a force in politics that people will know by name in a couple of years? No, um, unless um, they have some high profile conversions with Catholics in the administrative state of the judiciary. Um, but that's something they're they're working toward. So they want to convert elites because they think if they can convert elites, then they can have it. They've got a kind of elite based theory of social change. It's almost like what I call vanguard Thomism. Um, you Did know, you make that up. That's a very yeah term, but love it. Yes, yeah. So I mean, you know, not you know, not as a violent thing, but just as a theory of social change. Right? You've got to bring it bring it about with leaders bringing about the, in this case, counter-revolution. I mean, one integralist on Twitter compared it, uh, used this analogy, even compared it to the Albigensian crusade, um, which was extremely violent, so. He wants to reenact that? Is that that's what the case- Well, he said it would take right? something, to, to win it would take something like the Albigensian crusade, hmm. which was not a good analogy. I mean, I mean, or at least, it not it's not a good association to put in people's minds, right? But I think they think that liberalism is going to collapse at some point in the next fifty to hundred years, and so they're working pretty hard on trying to to, to win converts among the powerful, and then um, you know younger people uh, re, really trying to reach younger people, but they're not really interested in developing the ideas. There is one one area where I do agree or feel uh, kinship with some of those ideas, and it's that I think yeah. liberalism alone feels pretty thin. If that's the only thing that you believe yeah. in, there's not a lot to hold on yeah. to. And if this is the this is the libertarian pipeline to integralism that there is. It's the sense that libertarianism is so thin, but then libertarians put this form of life to it that's just utterly debased, um, which I think you and I agree is probably true um all this stuff about value being totally subjective and not they're not really being much morality um uh and uh thinking most morality is uh nonsense and authoritarian uh and i think yeah a lot of libertarians and classical liberals they're they end up having what Rawls would call a comprehensive doctrine or theory of the good um but they don't really try to develop it and when they do it's you know Oftentimes, it's pretty problematic. Now, there are those who try to develop a virtue theory in various ways, um, but then, you know, it gets kind of complicated. I mean, Deirdre McCloskey has a very 
uh, rich view. She in bourgeois virtues. I think she even speaks to supernatural virtues. So she's Anglican. Um, um, but then you know there aren't a lot of conservative Christians that are ever gonna follow Deirdre. Yeah, too much. Just because she's trans, or there's like well, I mean, she. Let's just put it this way. I don't. That doesn't. That's not a bureau to me at all in any way to 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 take her ideas seriously but it would it's going to be for a lot of conservative christians like that's just the reality hmm. converting elites do you think something like um is a uh, amy coney barrett is she is she sympathetic to these views or or no my guess is that she's enough of an obedient Catholic that she thinks the church's teaching on religious liberty and dignitatis humanae that came out in 1965 is the standard view. So, I mean, I know people that Notre Dame that knew her when she was there. And yeah, I mean, she's quite theologically conservative, but she, I, they didn't say she has no sympathies, but I'm pretty sure she would just say, look, I'm in line with the, the, the council and I accept the council and its teachings. So this, there's so many terms here that I've only, I've read a lot about this, but I've never said them out loud. Is Sede Vacantis? Sede? Yeah, they're such a small minority. They think the papal throne is vacant because of various bad popes and stuff. Um, but they're, they're an extreme minority. They only get brought up because they're viewed so wild um, and hilarious. So I thought I, I was reading the Wikipedia page once upon a time. And I'm it's sure Mel Gibson is on there or maybe it was Mel Gibson's. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. He said when he converted that like the Pope was the uh he was the chair. So he seemed to seem to think that then, but who knows what direction he's gone in. Hard to say. So beyond intellectual interest here, I mean, I think this stuff is inherently interesting and that's good. I was trying to connect it to will this small group have influence in the future? And that will clearly have an impact for climate change and, and many, many issues here. But it sounds like you think unless they make some major changes, this will likely remain a small group. And it seems like your writing is intended to nip it in the bud, essentially, and hope hope that it stays that way. Is that a correct reading here of your? Yeah, I mean, I want Christians to be doing political theology because I do think right now the church is in a, America church is in a state of captivity to political polarization. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the good thing the integralists did is that they revealed that there was all this young energy, youthful energy and passion. And so what I wanted to do was take the integralist seriously in order to kind of shed insight on sort of Christian political theology as a whole. It's the reason I don't go after it as much as possible. But yeah, I also don't want integralists in power, but I like that they're around. So in the same way that like in moral philosophy, I'm glad there are act utilitarians out there. You'll learn a lot from engaging their views, but I don't want Peter Singer in power, um, you know, but I'm, I like that he exists. Um, I like that he's putting ideas out there. His even some of them are, are horrible. You, you, yeah. have, you have to deal with his challenges, though. Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want integralists out there to shed insight, you know, but I just don't want them in power. So for me, if there's the intellectuals like Thomas Pink, uh, uh, who, you know, I talk to often, um, he's great. I mean, he just wants to talk. I mean, for him, you know, he is he's not a counter-revolutionary guy in terms of practical politics. Um, and, uh, but he does think integralism is the ideal, but, you know, he and I've even been talking recently about, you know, how mind-bogglingly complex, uh, some of the issues raised by integralism are. And I think what's exciting, um, is this prospect of shedding insight, uh, uh, together, um, uh, 
so so yeah i think i think yeah i'm pretty i'm pretty pleased about that um but uh, yeah i mean chapter four is meant to kind of try to make clear to young integralists like look you've got like the smartest theory of this one of the smartest you know theorists of the state uh around and you know he has to make these kind of instability claims and sort of predictions and implicitly assuming an elite-led theory of social change without really defending it and downplaying certain challenges of pluralism and you know it just it's just a really implausible um sort of project that i think ultimately will lead young catholics to impious places because you know either they just give in to their desire for power um or worse if you were moving in that direction they'd erode democratic institutions and the state would become more dangerous to people so yeah i don't think they intend that by the way i just think that's an inevitable consequence of their position like einstein was a socialist right like i, I don't think he'd hurt a fly <laughs> yeah uh I think some of what you said there is some of the most liberal thinking that I've ever heard articulated, and it probably just comes natural to you. But I feel very similarly too. Just because you write against someone doesn't mean you don't want them to exist. And I often feel that yeah. we're best as a society when you know I'm not uh, many of the people I named at the beginning of the show. Yeah. I don't share these beliefs. I'm, I'm not. I don't yeah. want them to not exist because they offer challenges. Both both far left yes. and far right offer challenges that you have to reckon with. And even the center, yeah. too. The center has weaknesses as well. They often are very good at pointing them out, and you have to be able to sustain those arguments and and address yeah. them if you want to have an integrity filled life here. That's good. No, I think that's right. And and, and you know, I, I'm going to be at Notre Dame Law on the 24th of January, and that's the talk I'm going to give. I'm going to say, look, you know, here's what I think it is. Here's what I think the, a good argument for the view is. Here's what I think a good argument against it is. I'm not here to bury integralism. I'm here to kind of take some of its energy and refocus it in a way that I think is productive. You you doing this with Deneen? Oh, he won't come. He won't come. Not even him. He's been he's kind of a no. superstar now. Uh, but no. no, no, no. We're we're uh, he's 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 blocked me. Um. Twitter? Yeah. You guys, you guys quarrel? Yeah. On no, I didn't quarrel. He just got blocked. I don't know why. Oh well. Yeah. I mean, he's the person I most associate with this, and it sounds like like Notre Dame is just a, a hub for this at this point. Not exactly. Among young people, there are just a huge amount of interest, but in many cases, they don't want to go all the way. Um. So so yeah, but we'll see what people say. Um. I none of the faculty are really sympathetic, but the young people. Um. I've I've been told um by younger people at Notre Dame are so I think we've we've spoken I think I have probably been a little bit careless in this show too of associating all of the authoritarianisms that are present now with integralism but that's not actually the case yeah. like I no. know people who, who are secular who like the uh Ebola and they like some of the yeah. weird, like mystic fascist kind of oh writing. yeah but that's oh yeah right yeah yes yes this is where the the new secular, the secular, weird secular part of the new right, like uh, like BAP and um, you know Bronze Age pervert and uh, people like that. Oh, you don't know that guy? Oh yeah, he, his uh, political philosophy book was like number one on Amazon. Um, wow. Yeah, and I, James Lindsay and just like these weird, weird guys. But yeah, they're totally. Uh, there is this weird non-Christian new right mystical fash kind of faction. 
Yeah, I had a moment during the early days of COVID where she became Orthodox. I think she came from DC and was dissatisfied. Who, who, who? I'd rather not name her on the show. I'm not. Oh, sure that, I see. Okay. I'm not sure you yeah, know her, cool. but but okay. She, she, fair, only, fair. she was only an acquaintance of mine, but yeah, she she was arguing against any COVID restrictions, which which you know, independently of the effectiveness of any of them, it doesn't even matter. So we ended up kind of going back and forth a little bit because she was saying that. Christianity doesn't actually um, require the protection of the weak over the strong. We've lived in such such a milk toasted society here that we actually need to prioritize the needs of the strong. And I had this sort of Will Durant broad arcs of philosophy moment. Like, yeah, isn't that because Christianity inverted paganism? Paganism was the worship of the strong over the weak. Christianity yeah. was blessed are the meek, and that was a major yeah. change for the entire human universe. And she was sort of inverting it but i didn't understand it because she was also a very serious orthodox believer and i was like but isn't isn't that very contrary to your views did i misunderstand her in some way like yeah yeah um yeah i think she would i would just disagree with that position completely okay. um so yeah i'm not sure if I'm yeah i just think you know you yeah. have i just think the institutions that actually help the poor are just really different than people on the left so you know it's still a it's god's world ultimately if we don't care for and protect the marginalized you know uh he's not exactly going to be pleased with us so yeah i just have a different view of that that happens i mean i think you know poverty gets eliminated only in market societies um and you know oftentimes you know government plays a role in trying to you know make sure that people don't remain marginalized under a market system and i my opposition to that is by no means total because we don't know enough about what the patterns of charity would be in the absence of the welfare state and how well it would go. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you have to have capitalism if you're going to take care of the weak. Um, the question is what kinds of protections um, uh, from capitalism's drawbacks are necessary in order to make them better off. And I think that's a really important question. Uh, I, I didn't know if I just didn't understand something about orthodoxy or cause she sounded like Ayn Rand or Nietzsche. I was just like, what, what synthesis no. has happened here that I don't even know about? Is this some sort of, no. okay. So it's, it's just wrong. Anyways, Kevin, we should probably, well, but I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, it's just that a lot of orthodox will get like interested in weird ideas and some, you uh, see, so you hear some of that, but they're still kind of trying to piece together their, their politics. I'm really glad you're here. Uh, it was very yeah. fun to, to talk. Great. Yeah. yeah. And then if you're if you're listening and you'd like to, to pick up a copy of Kevin's book, here it is. Watch out for the blur. How can I get it to work? Yeah. Over my. Oh uh, yeah. There you go. You did it. You did it. All the <laughs> kingdoms of the world. Beautiful. Yeah. Links links to the show notes. We talked about so many ideas and thinkers. I'll put them all in the show notes. Thanks for being here, Kevin. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.